This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. So, good morning. Um, I have just come out of a weekend retreat, and uh, it was wonderful. It's always wonderful, even when it's not wonderful. Uh, even, even when it's hard, actually, Sashin is, is always a re- revelation and uh, important to do in this practice. So many months ago, I was asked to give a talk that took place in August, the middle of August. So I was asked to do this talk probably in May. And it's because this one teacher was going to be going on retreat and she sets things up in advance and she comes up with a theme and then she asks several different teachers each week to come and lecture. So it's a little bit odd always to know that you're giving a lecture three or four months down the road and be asked not only to lecture on a certain thing, but to give them the the title of your talk. (laughs) It's like, I don't even know where I'm going to be in three or four months. So the title of the series was Practice in Hard Times. And right away I found myself disagreeing with the premise. Because from my point of view, you know, I, I don't know that you can say this is hard times. In fact, I'm pretty sure that there were times that were a lot harder than this. Uh, I'm, I'm sure if you lived in Germany at the time of Hitler, it was pretty hard times. And if you go further back, I, I'm sure that the Dark Ages were not exactly fun times either. Uh, and even before that, when Moses was running away from Pharaoh, was probably hard times from his point of view. So I, I realized it's not practice in hard times, it's practice in all times. That I can agree with, because it's always going to be difficulty. You know, this, is, this is our life. Things happen. Circumstances arise, situations come up, uh, and we have to deal with them. So at the time, asked to give a title for my talk, I thought, okay, it's going to have to be something pretty broad. And so I just said, okay, here, here's the title. Every day is a gift. So that works, right? And that, that line comes from a story uh, that was relayed to me by one of my teachers. But at the time all of this was happening, uh, I had foot surgery at the end of June on my left foot. You may have noticed, some of you, that I have to use my hand still to bow. I never used to have to do that. Um, but a plate was put in the big toe of my left foot. And so I have a little bit of movement here, but I have no movement here. So I'm still trying to figure out how to do this. And it's only in the last couple weeks that I don't really have any pain anymore. Uh, And so at the time all of this was being talked about, I'm looking ahead to the end of June thinking, well, it's going to be hard times ahead for me, for sure. And I had never had surgery in my whole life. I've never broken a bone, never been in a hospital. Uh, This was outpatient. Um, The surgery was only an hour. But um, it was fairly painful. 
And you always get a little worried when your doctor says ahead of time, well, there will be pain. <laughs> what does that mean? You know, what, your pain and my pain might be two very different things. So I was working very hard with my practice to not have some expectation of what was going to happen, trying to keep it very wide open. But of course, as the date was getting closer, I was getting a little more nervous. And uh, one of the things was that he looked awfully young to me. And so at one point I, I said, you know, I, I don't mean to be rude. It really, this is just coming from my nervousness, but how many of these operations have you done? And I said, it's just that you look rather young. And he laughed and he said, oh, hundreds. I said, good, that's all I wanted to know. <laughs> so I went in with a great deal of confidence. And, and the only thing that I discovered that I didn't know ahead of time, which many people have said, but uh, we didn't know, is that the anesthetic and then the um, medication afterward, which by the way was an opioid, um, made me sick to my stomach. And so the whole second day once the anesthetic began to wear off was just one of vomiting and pain. And I now realize I could have requested an anti-emetic, which I finally did at the end of the second day. So the good news is that that helped a lot. And it turns out that I have to do the same thing on my right foot next summer. So I'm going to be able to go into that with more information. But, you know, when I'm thinking the whole time all of this is happening, I'm thinking about this talk that I need to give on hard times, practice in hard times. And I'm thinking, well, relative to what? Because I have people in my sangha. I have one who is going through uh, treatment for cancer who then fell and broke his hip on top of everything. I have uh, my senior student just had uh, shoulder surgery this week, so she couldn't be here this weekend. One of my dearest students from uh, my school who is now entering his first year of college had a terrible anaphylactic reaction to antibiotics that he was given and uh, they almost lost him at 18. So, the th you know, you don't try and compare your suffering with anybody else's. It doesn't do any good. But, you know, my, my little foot surgery, while it was painful and it took a long time, you know, several weeks to be able to walk again and, and then another several weeks to walk properly. Uh, in the big scheme of things, I knew I was going to get better and I knew it was going to be okay. But that part about every day is a gift. It's a gift whether it's a good day or not because you're here for it. So it comes out of this story of my teacher, Blanche Hartman. She had a major heart attack when she was back in New York. And she was already in her 70s at that point. And she survived it. And when she was wheeled out onto the pavement, she looked around at the sky and she thought to herself, wow, from this point on, every day is a gift. And then being a good Zen teacher, she thought about it for a moment and thought, every day has always been a gift. But I do think that sometimes until you've had a crisis, a serious crisis, you may not appreciate how every day is a gift. And so as I told this group when I finally gave a lecture, I was like, 
So first of all, I disagree with the premise. There are always hard times, and there are always easy times, and there are always indifferent times in between. And our job is to be practicing at all times, no matter what's going on. To find our joy in the midst of our sorrow, or to see the sorrow in the midst of the joy. How many times have you been having an exquisite moment only to have that thought, oh, it'll be over soon, right? But, But then there's that other side of, you're just in the middle of something really awful, and it's hard to find the joy there. But I remember the teacher, Darlene Cohen, who had uh, rheumatoid arthritis. She said, as it got worse, as she got older, she said what she did was, when she, whenever she would come into a room, she would find one thing in that room that was either beautiful or interesting or gave her joy, so that as the pain would get worse or something, she would look at that thing and remind herself of beauty and of joy. And that was how she got through every day. So, you know, we don't ask for hardship, but we receive it pretty regularly um, because that is the nature of our life. And so the real question for us is can we go towards it and completely experience it, and then maybe possibly learn something from it. I am not one of these people that believes that life gives us the lessons we need. You know, I, I just I can't believe in a universe that is, you know, something up there thinking, well, Misha needs a lesson in patience, so let's, you know. But what I do believe is that our practice asks us to keep coming back to awareness of what's happening. And in that awareness, I might actually take this very difficult moment and learn something from it, or I may not. So this weekend, the lectures I gave were on Chiono and the Broken Bucket. And you know, if you know the story, Chiono was a servant in a convent. But she saw these, these women doing this very devoted practice, and she finally went to one of the elder nuns, and she said, you know, I, I am of humble birth. I'm illiterate. I don't know how to read or write. I have to work all the time. Is there any hope for me to practice Buddha's way? And the nun is wonderful. She's like, oh, this is wonderful, my dear. Absolutely. There, there is no difference in people. Everyone can practice this because every person is complete as they are. You just need to get to the source of your delusive thoughts. So Chiona goes 24-7. She's still working in the convent, but now everything is based in Buddha mind. Day and night, she practices with it. And then one time in the evening, she goes out to fill her bucket. And the moon is shining, and she's been patching this bucket because she knows how to take care of things with her little bamboo strips. And she puts the bucket down, and when it comes up, it's up just long enough for her to see the moon reflected in the water in the, in the bucket, when suddenly, 
the bottom drops out. And when the bottom drops out, the water disappears, the moon disappears, and Chiono disappears. Some of us, when the water dropped out of the bucket, might have said, oh, damn, my good bucket. What am I going to do now? But Chiono, that, w- that wasn't her response because she had been practicing all along. She was able to completely be in that moment when everything disappeared. And in that moment, she had great realization. So she says, I'll just quote her little enlightenment poem. With this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together, and then the bottom fell out. Where water does not collect, the moon does not dwell. But isn't that the way it is for most of us? We're patching it with this and that, trying to keep our bucket together, thinking that we're going to be able to keep repairing it that way. But sometimes it's appropriate to let your bucket fall apart. So I think that this practice in hard times was someone's thought that it's getting hard to get our, keep our buckets together right now. The buckets seem to be being patched an awful lot and they keep leaking. No pun intended. <laughs> so I started thinking about all of this from the point of view of hope. We don't talk in Zen practice about hope very much. We talk about faith. We talk about doubt. Um, but courage and hope are, are two things that I think we do, but we don't talk about them very much. So one of my Dharma friends, um, who I, I'm in a peer Dharma group, a Zen group, of Zen teachers from all different lineages of Zen. And my dear friend Diane Rosetto studied with um, Joko Beck, who was uh, a student of Maizumi Roshi. And Joko, you, if you don't know, you may have heard of a teacher who decided to um, drop all Zen forms. And the most that she would do, she would have, instead of an altar, she would have a rock. That was the altar. No Buddha, no incense, no special clothes. Right? And she did that practice for years and years, trying to get to the source of what was actually important about practice. So Diane Rosetto was one of her students. And she's just recently written a book called Deep Hope. And if you're at all interested, um, it is really beautiful and beautifully written. Um, But at the same time her book came out, this is really amazing. It's one of those synchronous events. Uh, Joan Halifax put out one called um, Wise Hope. And Joanna Macy put out one called Active Hope. And so hope is clearly in the air. I think we're all feeling like we need a little hope right now. And so I started thinking about, you know, what is hope? Is, Is it just this unrealistic, you know, I want? Or is there something more to it? So this is what Diane wrote in her book. My teacher, Joko Beck, counseled me not to be attached to anything, not even to no hope. Hope, yes, but don't be attached to the outcome. 
know the difference between what she called vain hope, which is a closed system between us and a desired future outcome, and what could be called deep hope, which makes no guarantees for any particular outcome. The former, vain hope, fails to appreciate the complexity of conditions that will arise with whatever comes to be, whereas the latter, deep hope, understands that in the midst of impermanence and interdependence, we can only do our best. I really loved that last line. In the midst of impermanence and interdependence, and understanding the complexity of causes and conditions. This is why black and white thinking doesn't work. It's very literal, and it does not take complexity into account. People would like the answer to be either this or this. And it is never just this or this. It's that and that and that and that and that. All that gray area in between, but that gray area is what makes everyone so uncomfortable. We want it to be clear. We want it to be certain, because then we're going to have some feeling of control, which, of course, is a delusion. You really have no control. Life happens, and you're a part of it. What you can do is respond. What we often do is react, which is a different thing. So in the midst of understanding, okay, so the three marks of existence. The first, the truth of suffering. I don't have to talk to you about that. You already have an experience of it. The second is the truth of impermanence. I don't really have to talk to you about that because you also all know that you don't look like you did when you were six years old. Right? Time has passed. You are no longer six. Some of you are not 16. Some of you are not 50. You're, you're going on the other side, like me. And then the third, which in Zen practice we call emptiness, but which can also be understood as total interdependence. Right? So emptiness is this understanding that there is no separate abiding self of anything. It is all dynamically interconnected. So she says, in the midst of impermanence and interdependence and suffering, we can only do our best. Isn't that encouraging? We get to just do our best. Now, we have to be careful because that's a slippery slope. Oh, well, I did my best, right? No. We have to be able to be very honest with ourselves. Did I actually do my best? Did I give this situation my best effort? Did I try to be as compassionate as I could be, as wise as I could be? Because we are all works in progress. And what I'm going to be in another 10 years may be an improved model on what it is now. I don't know. I do feel a little wiser than I was in my 20s. That could be a delusion, too. But one day it occurred to me that in my judging mind of, well, they could have done a better job, 
And I stopped myself and I said, well, why do you think that? Whatever, whatever they did, they did the best they could do by just de facto reasoning. Whatever you do, that's the best you can do in that moment. That's what, because that's what you're doing. So, in a sense, even if it doesn't look like it to you, everyone is doing their best. It just might be that their best isn't what you consider your best. Right? There's a judgment there. So, this thing that she refers to as vain hope, she says, it's a closed system. Right? It's unrealistic because we've already decided what we want the outcome to be. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm going to win the lottery because if I do, then I've got all this money that I can give to all these philanthropic organizations. That's, that's one of my vain hopes. Of course, you have to usually buy a ticket, and I never do. So it's a really vain hope. Right? But, but I've always thought it'd be great to suddenly get a lot of money because I could give money to Jokoji, I could give money to Zen centers, everywhere. And I could give money to my school. And wouldn't that be wonderful? Boy, it's like Christmas. But of course, it's not going to happen, partly because I don't buy tickets, and, and partly because I never win anything in my life. So the fact is, it's a closed system because I have an outcome in mind, and it's an unrealistic outcome. So my hope is going to be dashed. But deep hope understands that what will be, will be. No matter what I'd like the outcome to be, you know, I might be able to influence it. I might even be able to change the outcome depending on what I do. And then again, I might not. It partly depends on how ancient the twisted karma is. But I had an example this last year of a family member that has always been a little bit of a challenge, not a lot, but a little bit of a challenge for me. And um, it's my sister, I'll just say, my older sister. And she lost her husband unexpectedly last November. And for various reasons, one of which geographically I'm the closest, uh, I was the one that went down when her husband had the stroke. I was the one that stayed there. I came home. I went back. I was there when he died. I was there to help her because my sister didn't really understand about, you know, uh, health care directives and um, getting power of attorney and that kind of thing. So I was just the person helping her while she was trying to take care of her husband. And it changed everything in our relationship. It's, it's like night and day. And I just did for her what I would do for anyone I know, because I happen to know about those things. And because I've done hospice work, it was a very natural thing for me to do, but it made all the difference. So sometimes, you know, I think I'd always wished that we could have a better relationship, but sometimes something has to happen, a crisis again, to change things. There's this, this melting point so, even though it's the what will be, will be, deep hope recognizes free will, the ability to make good choices. Now, in my own case, maybe I could have said, wow, I, I just can't come for more than a couple of days, I'm sorry. 
But, you know, at some point, there are certain things that are pretty important, and you just say to your work people, I'm sorry, but I have to do this. This is my family, or this is my best friend, or this is, you know, whoever it is for you. And you go and do it. And you have that choice, and you have free will to make that decision. So how does Diane talk about deep hope? She says, like all of Zen practice, deep hope asks us to dwell in the unknown, that open, spacious realm of possibility. Yes, we face things as they are, but deep hope draws no conclusions about the future, for the future is yet to be and is determined by many conditions, including, but not limited to, our actions right here and right now. So although we see things as they are, maybe, (laughs) we also aspire toward what they could be. It was in deep hope that Martin Luther King Jr. encouraged us to keep raising our voices in solidarity and marching step by step. The same hope that expressed, I have a dream. Hope understood in this way goes beyond the probable to the possible. Because the future is wide open, anything is possible. Martin Luther King Jr. knew at that time that his dream was a dream at that moment that civil rights had a long way to go. We're still working on it now. But because he had a dream of the possible, then we can work towards making it a probable. But you have to have the possibility first. That is the first part of hope. You have to be able to have a hope that's realistic with no particular outcome. When you think of the Buddha, okay, 2,500 years has passed, and when he first talked about the practice going forward, the practice of Buddha mind, of true nature, he knew that he was going to have to think very long term. He even said at the time, 500 years will not be enough. And it's 2,500 years later, and we're still figuring it out. So the future Buddha, the Maitreya Buddha, has yet to come, because we're still working it all out. But we have a dream. We have a dream of a world of compassion and wisdom. It's rather like science fiction. The best writers are the ones that are able to look into the future and come up with a a more or less believable idea, which then gives rise to someone actually making that idea come true. So before, I think it's Orson Welles, there were no rockets, but he wrote about rockets. And now, rockets. We have private companies with rockets. This can be dangerous, of course. We write about things and people say, oh, that's a great idea, I'll try that. And maybe it's not such a good idea overall, but the fact is that in our practice, we would like to see 
wisdom and compassion, kindness and honesty. And so that is our hope. And it is real possibility of a, a probable outcome. So we come from the precepts moment after moment in the hope that we will follow them, that others will see and follow our example. But lest we misunderstand, another wonderful person, Vaclav Havel, who was a statesman, said, Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. So for Martin Luther King Jr., he didn't know if it was ever going to come out well, and he didn't live long enough to find out. But he had the certainty that what he was fighting for made sense. And it is the same thing for us. At least it is for me. I'm assuming it is for you because you're here. Practice has, however difficult it's been for me, how many ever, you know, times I've sat in session crying or being angry or whatever as things arose, it has always made perfect sense to me. The idea that there's some kind of heaven that I'm trying to behave nicely for here, for some future heaven out there, has never made sense. That heaven and hell are right here makes perfect sense to me. That we create our own heaven and we create our own hell. So we follow the precepts to the best of our ability. We do the best we can, knowing full well that we can't really keep them. There is no way you can keep the first precept. Just literally, you can't keep it. Because I'm pretty sure that most of you came here in a car today. There's a lot of insects lying dead by the side of the road right now, or on your tires. We cannot keep the precepts, but we still vow to keep them. We vow to do our best. That's the best we can do. So hope is not optimism. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm a fairly optimistic person. I really am. The glass is always half full. I am the Pollyanna. It's all going to turn out fine, even though deep down I know that it may not. That's optimism. I don't mind confessing to it. The good news is my husband is more on the pessimistic side, and so we balance each other very nicely. I go flying off into Pollyanna land, and he grabs me by the foot and brings me back down to earth, and I drag him up out of the pit of pessimism of it's all going to hell in a handbasket and say, well, it is right now, perhaps, but it's going to get better. <laughs> so it's important to find balance. But this is the part about hope not being a closed system and unrealistic. This is about, okay, here's what we've got. Now, what am I going to do with it? So years ago, you know, I have a Zendo in my home. And my group comes on Saturdays. 
And so years ago, my husband and I were on a vacation around the uh, winter holidays. And when I opened the front door, we'd been gone for two weeks. What is that smell? Well, the Zendo is in the former garage of the house, which is about that much lower than the rest of the house, thank goodness for us. Because when I opened the door, there was this much water in that room, and there were tatami mats in there, lying on top of carpeting. And it was disgusting. <laughs> there were mushrooms growing out of the tatami mats. The smell, the mold had already started up the walls. It was, so I spent the rest of my vacation bringing the tatami mats into my living room and putting the wood stove on full bore while we tried to dry them out. But the first thing that happened was it was pouring rain outside and we realized water was still coming into the room and it was getting close. It would have come into the rest of the house. I've been in Hawaii. I'm all relaxed and I come home to this. And there's a part of me that's like, I don't want to have to deal with this. What, oh, this, we're out there in our yellow slickers. I'm, oh, the power's out too, by the way. I'm holding a lamp because there's a, a drain right outside. We find out later that our neighbor's dog dropped a tennis ball down the drain because we had left it open because it often, the, the, the crisscross of the screen was too fine and so it would get clogged that way, stuff on top. So we had left it open and then he dropped the tennis ball down, which was exactly the same size as the opening. <laughs> so, there I am. I am cussing under my, it's like, I can't believe it. I'm so relaxed, it's such a nice vacation, I come home to this. But then all of a sudden it was like, that's not going to do it here. Just get a grip. What are you going to do now? You're going to get those tatami mats out. You're going to get as much of the water out as you can. We're going to try and unclog this thing. We're just going to do the next thing and the next thing. Did I like it? No. Did, was it what I wanted to do? No. Was, it, was I hoping to come home to? Absolutely not. But there you are. And now you have to act. And you can react, which is what I started to do, getting all pissed off. Or you can respond, which was I finally did, of, okay, we're in this. There is no way around this. Got to do something. So Joan Halifax, in her book on, her book is Wise Hope, <laughs> wrote, it's when we discern courageously and at the same time realize we don't know what will happen that wise hope comes alive. In the midst of improbability and possibility is where the imperative to act rises up. Wise hope is not seeing things unrealistically, but rather seeing things as they are. Or as Suzuki Roshi used to say, things as it is including the truth of impermanence, as well as the truth of suffering, both its existence and the possibility of its transformation, for better or for worse. I could have been out there in my galoshes and my yellow suit, cussing the whole time, 
getting myself even more upset than I already was, getting my husband upset as he was trying to clean out the drain with whatever tools we had. But to realize I'm adding to my suffering in this moment is the moment of transformation, is the moment when something else can happen. This happens in small things, it happens in big things. There's always this point where you can decide, you can make a choice to go down this path or that path. And sometimes when I'm mad about something, there's a part of me that very, I want to go down that path. I just really want to get really, really angry about this. Even, even though there's this other part of going, no, don't do it, don't do it. Every now and then I succumb. And I'm always sorry later that I succumbed because that way lies suffering. This way there may be some suffering, but maybe not as much. It's amazing what we do to ourselves. Anyway, Vaclav Havel turns out to be a very wise person, in, at least in some ways. And he goes on to say, and I love this, he doesn't use the word deep hope, but he describes hope, so I'm going to add that in. Deep hope is a state of the mind, not a state of the world. It is an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. It is the ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. It keeps us above water and urges us to good works. This, then, is the antidote to these hard times these people are referring to. First of all, we have to remember Hope is a state of mind, our collective mind. It is not a state of the world, the political, geographical world. We must keep hope as our collective mind. And then he says to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. People like Martin Luther King Mother Teresa, they know that they're a drop in the proverbial bucket, the bucket of civil rights, the bucket of poverty. People who spend their whole life putting a drop in those buckets, just they're not worried about succeeding because, frankly, it doesn't look very successful. You know, one drop at a time it takes a long time to fill up that bucket. But eventually, the bucket gets full and it breaks wide open because you did it because it was the right thing to do, not because it had a chance of success. And when the bucket breaks open, everything is possible. But then, most importantly, hope is what keeps us above water and urges us to do those good works. A week after that flooding at my house, a week of drying tatami mats, a week of sweeping water out, I finally wrote a note to my sangha, 
And I said, hmm, bad news. Here's what's happened. We won't be able to be in that room for a long time. It's going to have to, the walls are going to have to come out, new flooring. And I don't know what you guys want to do. Do you want to just stop meeting for however long it takes? Do you want to find a different place to meet? And you'll have to let me know. And somebody wrote right back. And the first thing he said was, you've known about this for a week, and you're only telling us now? We could have been up there helping you. Oh, oh, right. I don't have to do this all alone. So we had pictures all along the way, because we did meet at someone else's house. And every person in my sangha helped with the construction. We hired someone to do you know, the stuff we didn't know how to do. But every person was in there painting and mudding the walls. And we have pictures all the way along. But the one thing I included was a card that someone sent me. And Vaclav reminds me of this card. On the front, it's just ocean as far as you can see. Except in the middle of it, there's a hand coming out. And on the inside it says, oh, it's okay. I'm fine. No, you're not. <laughs> the bucket has just fallen out. You are not completely fine. You don't need to let the bucket fall apart all by yourself. Hope. Hope keeps us above water. Hope and sangha and family. And that mind, that mind that remembers that hope is living in that collective mind, not in the world. It is an orientation of the heart. We must have hope in order for something to happen. We just don't get attached to our hope. Something's going to happen, and we may have some ability to influence that. To remember that the majority of people are good, decent, kind. That's important because the news is always telling us about the negative. That's the stuff that sells. I don't understand why, but it does. But every time you have a disaster, and I mean, by, you know, you get a bad health diagnosis, you get a flood, you find out that your child is in trouble because they've just had a huge shock reaction to an antibiotic. Everybody comes to help. When my parents' house flooded in a freak flood in Los Angeles that affected everybody downhill from this one flood control channel, everybody came to help. There was mud in my mother's house that was this high. Everything was buried. People came with more sandbags. They came with shovels. My sixth grade teacher came. I hadn't seen my sixth grade teacher in 15 years. My old boyfriend from high school came. <laughs> when you need help, there is hope because people are good. 
we follow this practice to become upright people. It is my experience of all the sanghas that I visit and practice with that there is great good, great untapped good. And as that elder nun said to Chiono, people are complete in themselves. You are already perfect, as Suzuki Roshi would say. Our job is to realize that perfection. So thank you for sharing your morning with me. May your bucket fall apart and may other people help you put it back together. (laughs) And unfortunately, it's almost 12.30. So do I ask for questions or not? All right, one or two questions. Yes. I'd like to be what Thich Nhat Hanh said, invite fear and pain into our consciousness and care for them every day. Mm-hmm. Be grateful for them. They turn the compost of our conscious minds into flowers and vegetables. Perfect. And clearly something you live by because it's right there for you. Thank you. Yes. Question about uh, do your best. Uh, I had the vain hope that I could get a contractor or handyman to fix some things around my house. <laughs> After having three people go over the things, actually come to my house, but never actually schedule something, I started to do a few myself. And um, like I was, I was uh, painting and caulking some um, a threshold on a door. And what I noticed is, so when you say something like, do your best, I have all these ideas about, you know, what a good job is. And um, the reality is, you know, what I kept saying to myself is, no matter what I do, I'm waterproofing it. It's looking a lot better. Uh, But I had all these ideas of what my best is. My best is really, you know, really, you know, doing a lot more work to get this really done, but it was more like, you know, I need to just get this stuff done. So I was wondering if you could talk a little about this do your best versus, you know, this thing that we think, I mean, for me, I think I need to be doing a lot better. (laughs) And I could do a lot better, it's just, it seems like, you know. So remember, it's that we're doing our best in this moment right here, right? A year from now, Uh, you might know a little better about caulking, right? And then you're going to do your best at that moment. We can only do our best in this moment with what we've got. So it may be that if we're having a difficult relationship with someone, you know, difficult times, that that's the best we can do right now until we've gotten to the bottom of where the difficulty is. And then maybe the best changes. So the only thing we really have to worry about is not rationalizing to ourselves. Yeah, well, I did my best, and you know, they're still a jerk, right? Okay, we could do that. That's not what we're talking about. You did your best. Given what your knowledge was, given what your skill level was, you did your best in that moment. You had ideas about what best could be. That's a different thing. Those are your ideas. What you actually did in that moment 
was your best. So not to get caught, but the problem is that it'll like Chiono. Chiono comes to that elder monk and, and elder nun and she's, she's very humble and she says, you know, I don't know how to read, I don't know how to write, I have to work all the time, is there any hope for me? And this is because she's got an idea in her mind what the best thing is. The best thing is, and probably it's the case that these, the nuns, because this is the, 12th, the 13th century, right? It's probably the case that those nuns came from very privileged backgrounds, but for one reason or another didn't get married. So they went into the convent. And so they do read and write, which at that time was a very unusual thing, especially for women. So she had this idea of the, the best. The best would be if I could read and write and be like you, but I can't. And the nun is so kind in that moment of saying, no problem, wonderful, yes, of course you can. Because you're going to give it your best, which is indeed exactly what Chiono does. Her best is not being able to read and write. Her best is not uh, to come from a privileged background. We all come to our lives with causes and conditions from our childhood. From the moment we were in the womb, <laughs> mothers were talking to us. Music was being played. And as we progressed through our life, opportunities were presented or not. The very fact that we can all be here today, we are privileged. Many people have to work. They have to work seven days a week. They work their five-day job, and then they have to work a weekend job. They can't do something like this. We are very privileged. So then we go out and we do our best to take our practice to the rest of the world because some people can't come here for practice. So we take it there. So the trick is, though, not to rationalize and say, well, yeah, sure, I did my best. When you actually, I think we know. We know when we've given something our best effort. And it may not be as good as the handyman who does it all the time, but you gave it your best effort. That was the point. And let go of the ideas of, well, I could have done it better. No, maybe not. Great example, thank you. And there's the bell. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.